experienced anything like it. I'm thinking of ending things. Huh? What? Did you say something? I don't think so. Weird. And we're back. Welcome once again to another episode of Mike, Mike, and Oscar. I guess it's technically, usually at least, also Mike, Nomcast, Andrew, and Mike One happens to be here this time. I'm not jealous. <laughs> no, seriously, we, are, we could not be more thankful and gracious that we're reviewing, I'm thinking of ending things, the new Charlie Kaufman movie that's being released actually today on Netflix, and Nomcast Andrew uh, is nice enough to let us come along for his ride today. So yeah, special thanks to Netflix for letting us watch this one early, and And on that Mm -hmm. note, I think uh, we structured this episode with Andrew to give you guys a huge non-spoiler section. So you got almost an hour of non-spoilers, so fear not. If you have not seen this movie, (laughs) we are very vague, we are cryptic, and we have a ball talking about this one and teasing you about this one because Charlie Kaufman, my God, is he one to talk about. And then after you watch the movie this weekend, you can you know, check out our quicker spoiler section. Yeah, I was going to say. The, the hour-long non-spoiler is probably good for even if you have seen the movie because uh, one of the running themes throughout our review is all three of us are going to say, well, we watched this all each individually the first time, and we had no no clue what was going on. Right. So uh, we needed more than one viewing. We assume that's going to be a universal theme. Maybe not. Maybe we're the three True. stupidest men on earth. That's going to be up for you, dear listener, to decide. But, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in this movie that is uh, uh, b- bizarre is a word that comes to mind that we try to parse through and get to the bottom of for your benefit. Yeah, you got the deep dive after it on what it all means. So uh, we're proud of that as well. In this- so Nomcast Andrew joining MMO here today or vice versa, however you want to look at it. Our review of Charlie Kaufman's I'm Thinking of Ending Things non-spoiler section followed by the spoiler filled section the latter half hour of this episode stay tuned guys and we will see you on the other side all right we got the mike mike and oscar boys in the house for this one uh very excited to talk about this movie uh for anyone who did obviously that's why you're here uh i'm sorry that your brain is broken uh (laughs) hopefully uh you know the hospitals aren't too jammed up with other issues that you can get that fixed very shortly but Man, was I excited uh, after watching this one, especially watching it a couple times to talk about this one, especially with these two guys. How are you folks? Mike and Mike, tell, say hi to the people. I was going to make a joke. You ready? Go for it. It's a great joke. I'm thinking of ending things. <laughs> Wait, did you hear that? <laughs> you guys heard me? <laughs> yes. <Fuck. laughs> I did. I swear to God, I had in my brain... Uh, that especially once you're like, oh, yeah, you can host this one and all that. I was like, all right, I'm going to sh- start doing that like mid res when we were in like real good things. Just kind of like turn and you can see me on Zoom. Just like look off screen <laughs> just, and just kind of have that. I'm thinking of ending. Yeah. And then have you guys interrupt me and be like, what would what, you, you say? Uh, Did you say yeah. something? Yeah. You want to get some ice cream? <laughs> all right. Yes. But wait, I want ice yeah. cream. Let me just make that. <laughs> That's the one thing we're center. all sure of coming out of this movie is that we could all do a blizzard or at least a knockoff blizzard at some point. Well, I know that you guys always get all bent out of shape of why Netflix releases things when they do, especially if it's possibly got Oscar pedigree at all. Correct. Uh, this movie, I think, came out in the release date that it did because it's so hot and sticky out that this is so ice cream centric <laughs> that that is why they moved it up. It's the best way for them to get appeal at this point in time <laughs> in the movie season. So I hope you guys are behind me with that point. 
the drool coming down my face <laughs> during the ice cream and chocolate Yule log scenes of this movie. What? What Just is the, a chocolate Yule log? Is that a real thing? Is a chocolate Yule log an actual dessert? It needs nah. to be now. I yeah, I would dance, kill so many people <laughs> to to have just one bite from that gif. It's all over Twitter right now. Hey, it looks like a thumb. It's all good to me. So, <laughs> thank you guys for being here. Thank you guys for doing this. Uh, you know, and I hope that you know after this, you guys uh, or after watching this movie, especially that. Your uh, garbage cans do not look like the dumpsters full of Tulsi Town ice cream. Oh, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> I wish. Like, <laughs> we're all going to get diabetes after watching this movie. But I appreciate you guys for being here. And I know that I had to do it this way with you guys because, you know, Mike, uh, also Mike, has been so gracious to be on uh, doing some collabos on this show prior. And we definitely have been talking about this movie it feels like for months now uh weirdly because netflix never really kind of you know has a long look at things like Mm -hmm. they never really have a huge ramp up for the these type of things i wonder why they did with this one uh maybe to try to actually get people to get to a place to watch an existential nightmare like (laughs) this one be mentally Uh, prepared right um, but we definitely talked uh, about our excitement about doing this. I know also Mike had mentioned uh, before that he was a big Kaufman fan. Uh, Mike, obviously, I didn't really hear your take on it. What is your uh, – do you have a fascination with Kaufman as well, or do you just appreciate him on a certain level? What do you think about him? Yeah, I'm not uh, nearly as big of a, of a Kaufman fan as, as my co-host there, but I, I appreciate him. I, I always – I, I guess it's kind of fitting for this review that we're going to do, but I always find myself incredibly frustrated when I watch whatever he does. So right. and this was no different, uh, even more so. So I, I guess I should have gone in expecting that. But, uh, you know, I, I respect the man and I respect his vision. And like a couple other big name directors out there and, and screenwriter directors, you know, when you're watching a, a, a Kaufman movie. And this is definitely something that's going to stick around, I think, as going into the Kaufman pantheon. Yeah, he's definitely an auteur who I think actually gets off on breaking people's brains and, <laughs> and, and, and really getting into the philosophy of a lot of different things. And and story structure is obviously something that he's known for, or not the lack thereof, but like a very odd time thing. He's like a, being a drummer in Rush. You know, it's like <laughs> he's amazing at it. He's got really odd time signatures. He's mm. not like anybody else. It's like doing math, but it's, you know, it somehow appeals to a lot of people, including myself. Uh, I am also a Rush fan. I, I will I will take that on the brain. But this type of movie does appeal to me. I saw the trailer. Uh, I know Mike did as well. And we discussed the trailer at length. And it definitely fits kind of like the psychological thriller profile in the actual trailer. I think the tempo of this movie does kind of change things up. I, I It's so hard for me to say not just Mike. Okay, <laughs> just call me the I, other I, guy. I know. <laughs> other guy. Yo. Also, Mike, I know, you know, we talked about it. We dissected the trailer. What? did you have for expectations going into this and how do you think things changed once you actually dove into this movie? 
Well, yeah, I'm a Kaufman guy from the time I was in school because he was winning, you know, best screenplay Oscars when I was there. I was growing my hair out like him back in college, <laughs> and he put, and talk about structure junkies, he put the quintessential screenwriting professor as the mentor character in adaptation, right. Robert McKee. So, I mean, my expectations for this was that this is always going to be a master class in story structure and was going to throw me for a loop i did not expect to walk away from this muttering and puttering like david thewlis's character <laughs> just cursing at charlie kaufman and ian reed after my first watch but that's that's just my first watch when you actually sink your teeth in and study this one you're won over and i was begrudgingly won over at first but i'm i'm shocked to say after how how vehemently I, I was just so angry with yeah. this man after the first watch. I am begrudgingly won over officially after the uh, the second. Yeah, and McKee would definitely uh, start screaming <laughs> so many epithets <laughs> at this movie for the amount of voiceover uh, in this film because uh, that was one of his big key things in adaptation, saying how lazy he was for doing so much voiceover. Let's set the table a little bit. We talked about this movie so much because we're in a starved 2020 setting here. We're getting mm. into September, which is the normal, you know, kind of entryway into some of the Oscar films. And when you have the pedigree of someone like Charlie Kaufman and the cast that we have here, you definitely, you know, it, it perked my ears up. I mean, especially as doing a Netflix podcast, August was terrible, absolutely terrible. It was, you know, a, a real like for how much you know their summer was built up i mean they really had a couple of breakout hits but for the most part it was a tough slog to get through but man we've talked at length uh between also mike and myself about the the schedule that they have coming up and this is the entry into the onslaught that netflix has from here through the end of the year and this movie has a lot of my favorite people. It has Jesse Plemons playing Jake. Uh, you know, he is turning into a Netflix all-star. He actually might be. I, I'd really want to do almost kind of a, you know, an Olympic or some kind of like ranking system or something because, man, this is his fourth Netflix film uh, between El Camino, where he has one of the greatest singing moments and crazy performances in that film. Uh, he's in The Irishman. And he's also in The Discovery, which uh, for us guys here was actually shot in Connecticut. Didn't know if you knew that. Um, the, Did not know that. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, he's obviously known for Breaking Bad or The Master or Game Night, depending on where you're coming through. And he's got a bunch of other stuff on the horizon between Antlers, Judas and the Black Messiah and Jungle Cruise, which, wow, those three in a sentence is <laughs> wild. Um, the man's but, got range. Yes, and and we'll talk about how his range is on full display in every form in this film. And then Jesse Buckley couldn't be hotter right now. I mean, Wild Rose, I think, was such a breakout, I think, especially in the U.S. here. You know, I know she won previous awards for BAFTA for, for previous work, but man, did Wild Rose just blow me away. She was so electric in that movie, and I couldn't wait to see what her follow-up was, and I was very excited to know that not only is she in a film for Netflix that I get to dissect, but also something for Charlie Kaufman. But 
she wasn't even the first pick for this film, uh, which I found amazing as well. Brie Larson was actually supposed to play uh, the the woman character here, and I'm not saying that in some kind of uh, odd. That is actually how it's billed. She is known as the woman. So for anybody who's like, no, her name was this. Uh, you didn't watch the movie too close. Uh, <laughs> but Jesse Buckley, she's amazing. Uh, you know, she was in Judy. She has a turn in Chernobyl, which was a huge hit for HBO. She's got The Courier coming up. What was the original title of The Courier guy? Was it Iron Bark? Iron Bark. Iron oh, Bark. Oh, that's right. My that's God, insane. that just came, yeah, that was like a deja yeah. vu moment. Yeah, metal dog. <laughs> yes. Yes. stupid title. Yeah. That was a, a Sundance <laughs> film that should be coming out. I, I mean, I don't know how you guys even keep up with the should have, could have, would have come out release date uh, cycle that comes through. You guys do an excellent job with that every week. But woo, makes Mike does an excellent spin. job of that. Mike, that's all, Mike. I want to just get set the record. He does a fantastic <laughs> job being on top of that. I've gone cross-eyed. <laughs> yes. But you're right. The Jessies, the Jessies are the stars of this movie, though. I mean, you go in thinking Tony Collette and David Thewlis are going to be all over the supporting races. But the Jessies, I mean, Charlie Kaufman and the Jessies, which is probably a good name for a band, by the yeah. way. And Jesse Plemons could lead sing, you know, be the lead singer it's there. True. He used to be a lead singer of a band. And he does a great job singing in this movie. So, yeah, I, I was blown away by how smart the acting was in this. It's not audacious. It's not over the top. They kind of go against movie criticisms that are given in this movie. So you get film criticisms in this movie yes. spouted by one of the characters, which is brilliant, one of my favorite scenes. Yes. And they go kind of against that, but with it at times. Uh, I'm, in, I'm in love with both Jessies at this, and I won't mention Jesse Plemons's I was That's what I was going to bring out. up, is that we've had a long-running joke, and it started with also Mike, and he, I think he did it amongst his brothers, that Jesse Plemons... I'm a bad person. Jesse Plemons yeah. was always known as Fat Damon on our show. And I was going to say, it, it feels like, you know, our our little boy is all grown up now because we're seeing he's no longer just fat day. I mean, he's outstanding and he's, he, I, I mean, I made the, he's got such range joke kind of in jest, but he is truly uh, turning, coming into his own as an actor that can play any kind of character. It's like seeing a young Philip Seymour Hoffman in some ways, the way he embraces some of these roles. Yeah. He is a true character actor that, I mean, it's, it's kind of like the same thing with Philip Seymour Hoffman. He was so incredible at just like, taking a role and making it explode usually for him early on was like taking these small roles mm -hmm. like boogie nights comes to mind and just making it pop and stealing the scenes Plemons isn't so over the top with no. anything he is incredibly subtle uh in his performances and usually the roles that he picks um this one has way more to chew on although is still a very subtle performance um i i I put in quotes because he, he mentions it in the movie that he is the also ran of this film, even though it's, uh, you know, <laughs> kind of putting the prism through his own life. But it's it's baffling to uh, know that he hasn't been kind of this larger, bigger figure yet, like in the award circuit stuff or whatever. I don't know if this is going to be his entree into that at all. Maybe Jungle Cruise is what'll put him over the top. He's uh, his role in Jungle Cruise. That Crew. accent though in that trailer was awful. <laughs> <laughs> Crikey. <laughs> that is called paycheck. Yeah, so, exactly. <laughs> and, and good for him. Get Absolutely. Your money, man. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. If you're in a movie with The Rock, that's all you got to do. Yep. <laughs> uh, at least he's not jumping off a skyscraper or something. You know, it's at least in, you know, sea level. I feel he's like good. that's a shot at me personally, and I'm going to let it go. <laughs> <laughs>
We'll get that for another, another time. Um, another, you know, again, the rest of the cast, you know, it's a small cast, but my God, these intense performances. Anybody in here uh, that we're going to mention did an amazing job. So Tony Collette, which I know you guys are stands for her as well, especially so good. Uh, Mike one. Yeah. Uh, now I know, you know, you've been kind of chasing down that. When will it be her time thing for her? I mean, I agree. She's been amazing for a very long time. I, you know, Sixth Sense was probably the first time I saw her. About a Boy, I love that movie. I don't know about you guys, but man, did she really pop in that movie. Uh, I know you're a big Hereditary fan and, and thought she deserved more for that. Little Miss Sunshine, of course, and every... So I, I laughed so hard uh, when I saw what she has coming next, a uh, movie from Sundance that came through in 2020, Dream Horse. I saw it. Because uh, <laughs> I know the horse fascination with you guys. So. But it's she's had this great career, and, and my grudge against horse movies aside, just look at what she's done lately. Like, her last couple roles have just been, and it's, again, it's kind of like what we just finished talking about with Jesse Plemons. It's been these eccentric characters but they've all been wild in their own ways between you know knives out velvet buzzsaw hereditary now this role they're all wild characters and she is another one that just she she's awesome and i can't help my eyes i don't know about you guys but my eyes are always drawn to her whenever she's playing these roles I was so glad that we got the opposite of the hereditary dinner table scene (laughs) in this movie, Mike. The polar, literal, and metaphorical opposite. Good point. I was was thinking of you. Yeah, and you guys also covered Unbelievable on your podcast, like, very deeply. And, you know, it it got a lot of Emmy nominations for that as well i didn't follow up to see whether it won i'm a bad netflix person in that respect but this is a movie podcast so i can't cover everything (laughs) so just know that to everybody um and then david thulis is here as the father he's kind of like the the last big character in here i uh was very perturbed or annoyed with also mike's notes on this one where he just referred to him as the laugher in the Big Lebowski, he is a right. he is a video artist, sir, for Maud. So I think you very much undersold him as a character. Uh, so I was very annoyed as a person who is a huge Big Lebowski fan. You know what the best part of that is? Is that how we just pissed off a bunch of people that only know him from Harry Potter. <laughs> That's true. Well, I would hope anyone who's really into Charlie Kaufman also knows he was the lead in Anna Melissa as well uh which you know he co-directed that film but that is his film so i don't want to undersell you know saying like he co-directed just because he uh doesn't know how to do the animation himself but man (laughs) he definitely gets uh full credit for a movie that was you know we don't know kaufman that much as a director yet i mean you're talking two films but anomalisa was up for best animated feature when this happens so he's definitely got the chops that i i maybe undersold in our previous conversations uh, also mike like he definitely has the writing prowess but do you see anything in his directing that maybe now you see more now that we have more evidence that shows his particular style his stamp on his directing style oh i mean he's got style coming out the wazoo i think he makes these productions dense with all the references for sure like you you said in the pre-show only 15 percent of the book dialogue was used in this movie yeah. so i mean he puts a stamp on on most of the the wording of this i think 
I think David Thewlis is becoming a Kaufman-styled actor at this point, and I wonder mm. if he and Tony Collette's takes on these characters is going to become a thing. Like, we sure. always used to say, like, it's a Hal Hartley movie, or it's a David Lynch delivery, right? Sure. And this is something wholly opposite. Like, I would... I would never want to meet or talk to David Thewlis from this movie in my life. And I'm wondering if my co-host, Mike One, would rather talk to this David Thewlis, the uh, the one from Wonder Woman, the one from Harry Potter, the one from Fargo. He's brilliant in Fargo. And he's brilliant in all of these. Yeah. Or uh, from that trailer for Eternal Beauty, Mike, if you had to have a beer with one of them. Uh, any of them but Tony Collette from Hereditary would be my answer. Uh, you know what I was wondering sincerely, though, and Thulis does do a great job, and, and I, I, I don't know how to answer that question, so I'm just going to sidestep and bring up my own. When they get the script, when when Tony Collette and David Thulis, when everybody gets this script, how, how long must it take? I mean, Kaufman must sit with these guys and go line by line. I need you to play this line this way. It's supposed to have this emotion because the emotion and tonal changes from scene to scene, especially in this movie, are so extreme and bizarre. And of course, they have to be because of what's actually being shown and portrayed. But it just the prep work alone, it must have taken eons and a lot of one-on-one time. And I get, I mean, that's totally a credit to both their acting skills that they were able to convey it and obviously Kaufman's direction on set. But really, really stunning job in the performances, I thought, and the direction. Well, especially when you consider the fact that uh, this was uh, notoriously like kind of intense shoot, uh, which how can it not be with direction like that, with the differential that you were saying in terms of just even subtle line-to-line dialogue changes and setups, too, as well, color changes, right. you know, background changes. A lot of the cinematography, which we'll get into in a second, blew my mind with this. Credit to the editing, too, is what you're saying. Yeah, I, I, I'm with you. All of it. and yeah. then, But so they were doing, especially with those long car ride scenes, they were doing 11 pages a day, which for <laughs> anyone who has done you know films before like if you're getting i don't know five set like if that's good for a day if you got full coverage on that that's insane so that meant that not only was it a rigorous shoot uh to just be in a small confined space for days on end kind of just doing subtle maybe changes in terms of setups or or even uh, costume changes or any of these things you have to stay within the literally moment to moment on these scenes to to stay within that and then do that large a volume is incredible yeah six days of car shoots 66 pages worth. unbelievable i believe it i believe it after the amount of time we spent in that car yeah but uh on on first watch i think i was infuriated by the second and third car scenes re-watching them and re-watching how lucas Zhao of i ida i'm gonna mispronounce everything in this uh, <laughs> episode by the way david thulis included i have no idea and i refuse to look at him but i think consistency you know cold war Cold War, Molly Hughes with the production design, uh, Lucas Zal with the uh, cinematography, Kaufman in terms of his stamp. I mean, he is hiring some of the best people. He worked with Michel Gondry. He worked with Spike Jones throughout his career. He knows that he wants a unique visual style yeah. to each one of his films. And we are stuck in this car for like 15 minute long scenes. And you got different setups like crazy. And you get these money shots. You know, the same way you had the poster shot 
shot of her sitting in front of the huge floral wall yeah. at the dinner table. It's in the yeah. film, too, yeah. and it's gorgeous. You get that same style of shot with the top of the car, and they're you know they're just at the bottom through the front dashboard window. I, I was I was blown away by how he shot and edited those scenes upon rewatch. And the, the first time I was just like, "Stop quoting Pauline Kael. <laughs> this is too much Pauline Kael." But the second time, I'm actually paying attention to the cinematography because it's so gorgeous. And if you're going to be stuck in the same spot for for much of the movie then have a guy like Lucas Zal who comes from just shooting po- no offense Mike well uh, sorry Mike offense because Poland I don't know if it's as cinematic as it could as other countries <laughs> if I knew so, any Polish from my native language I would say how dare you in it right now but I don't so how dare but you Lucas Zal the way he shoots Poland and all of his films I want to go to Poland I mean right. it's that good I mean so he, he makes you know he makes a lot out of uh, very little there yeah, and listen, we'll talk about awards stuff at the end and everything else, but the fact that he already had Oscar pedigree coming into it too, you know, with amazing style, you're right. It was a perfect choice, and it's something that can garner a lot of attention with a movie like this that can kind of bend every which way and kind of, you know, make the audience into a dizzying mess potentially by the end of the film. Which is what you want out of any movie, you know? <laughs> Actually, kind of. Uh, not you, not you specifically, sir. <laughs> yeah, so I will set the table in terms of the plot. You know, plot is relative, but uh, the, there, are, <laughs> there are general things here. And I feel like I'm scaring off people, but I assume that people uh, are at least hanging in for the non-spoiler section here. So I will try to be kind uh, if they are just jumping in to hear our thoughts and then go see the film. But the film is, despite second thoughts about the relationship, a young woman, played by Jesse Buckley, takes a road trip with her new boyfriend, played by Jesse Plemons, to his family farm. Trapped at the farm during a snowstorm with Jake's mother, played by Tony Collette, and father, played by David Thewlis, the young woman begins to question the nature of everything she knew or understood about her boyfriend, <laughs> herself, and the world. An exploration of regret, Longing and the fragility of the human spirit. I'm thinking of ending things is directed and written by Academy Award winner Charlie Kaufman. Of course, that was for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. And it's inspired by the Ian Reed's best-selling namesake novel. Reed is also a producer on the film and was very enthused uh, that someone was actually able to interpret the novel, which I guess was also very frustrating but also critically acclaimed which so far in the in the ratings i've seen for this film as well is kind of in that vein as well this is going to be quite divisive based on how you interpret the data or don't interpret the data (laughs) uh and i i can believe that as well but it had the author's blessing which is an interesting turn for this one so now i want to get some like introductory thoughts i know Also, Mike had said, like, on first blush, you said certain things. I will say, at first blush, when I watch this film, it's hard to know the themes. Like, they mention in the the explanation here that it's an exploration of regret, longing, and the fragility of the human spirit. That's absolutely true. But it also, I, I thought the movie was more about aging dementia and loneliness i mean there are a lot of themes here and and they kind of all encompass this 
particular character. Mike, you want to chime in on that? Yeah, I think this plot is like a round. And I'm not a musical guy or I'm not a music guy, so forgive me if that's the wrong term. But a, I think a round is a repetitive song where you add another verse every go round. I see, and yeah. Sing mm-hmm. them all adding up until you've got 11 other things before a partridge in a pear tree, right? <laughs> yeah. So I think with this movie, like you get a lot of density early, but you don't know what the hell's going on. I think thematically it builds on itself and builds on itself and builds on itself until you're at a breaking point right around the midway, uh, right around the dinner scene where Tony Collette is very animated yes. again. So that typically happens in a Charlie Kaufman movie. The middle is is full of dread, and you get a lot of that again, and then he kind of pieces it together for you on the, on the latter half. But, yeah, you're starting out. You're starting out adding one reference upon the other, and I want to call – I want to pronounce his name Ian Ray. <laughs> yeah, it's a very of odd. The, the eyes in that name. I'm very angry at the eyes in that yeah. name. But I think <laughs> – I think that that book must be something to read. I think it, it, it's dense, like I like the movie is. It uh, goes in directions that are even darker somehow. So I, I'm gonna have to listen to that on audiobook at some point, probably before I read Ant Kind, but not back to back because that will that will ruin my life. Well, to, to your point, Mike, I, I definitely echo a lot of the sentiment you do, and I I actually was very thankful that this movie was a Netflix movie because the beauty of Netflix movies is that I can watch it go and then rewatch it immediately and kind of go, okay, now that I know this, does does it open up itself to me on second watch? Yeah, and I was gonna say Mike took a really like professional and like sophisticated take <laughs> on first impression. I'm gonna dumb it down. My first impression, if you're only gonna watch this once, probably don't bother. Because yeah. I think all three of us here in reviewing this, like, we're like, oh, yeah, the first watch was something. But the second watch or the third watch or the second and a half watch, sure. then stuff started coming together. And that's exactly how I was. I, and I don't rewatch movies usually, but you're absolutely right. Had this not been on Netflix, I mean, being on Netflix is a saving grace. You have to take this in more than once. Right. Do you guys think it's because there were like too many references to art and pop culture? I mean, we have Dennis Miller brains for this because <laughs> this is all we do. But were you guys getting bogged down in that? Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't say bogged down. I think uh, because a lot of it I think is not it's the substance of what they're saying and not the actual people itself or the the its place in time or anything nothing of when those movies or books or poets or whoever matter it's the content of right. what that particular character is gleaning from those subject matters is what matters going forward for the story of or in this character study of this man kind of looking back on his life through uh, a very unreliable fragmented version of his life at least yeah i would say it's almost like the a lot of what is said in the movie for such a dialogue intensive movie you can't take it at face value almost nothing that's really said is actually what's being said because it's all about the context and the intimations of what that means in a larger sense to what the framing device of the whole film is so it's really really unique in that way so do, do we get bogged down in pop culture stuff I mean, I, I, my answer is I got bogged down in everything the first watch, so sure. 
he's kind of deliberately subverting a lot of movie conventions, not only in the way the actors deliver their lines. Like, I've never seen anything like David Thewlis and Tony Collette ever. Never seen anything like that dog. I've never seen anything like that basement. <laughs> right. And, you know, I'm trying to tease people here. So I do think he's playing with the form quite a bit, and he's, and he's overt about it because he's trying to get you thinking about all these different things the same way he screwed with our heads in Adaptation and uh, Eternal Sunshine and all my god malkovich so <laughs> malkovich malkovich i'm terrified to read ant kind is what i'm uh, the thesis statement of this episode is ant kind on audible is 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 very ominous for me right now now do you guys uh I, I we mentioned kind of in the in the pre-show here that or at least i did that i thought it definitely matched up to some of kaufman's previous work in terms of somewhat in terms of structure but definitely in terms of the oddities that he brings uh, to the table. Oh, yeah. There's even an overhead shot of the car right, right in the in the parking lot with covered in snow. That's the same kind of blocking as the shot in Eternal Sunshine. Sunshine, Sunshine. If I can, easy for me to say. <laughs> and the poster, right? So I mean, it, I love that. I love that. Uh, you know, you get all these echoes. Yeah, Eternal Sunshine was the one that I brought up uh, mostly, like because the way this story is structured. It kind of just jumps right in to the the road <laughs> the, the craziness the road trip uh, <laughs> the the story just sets right out and is already uncomfortable and odd from a very early time like it's it's very slow and subtle in the beginning although I will say like told you in the pre-show too on my third kind of scan through that I did right before show I was still noticing things that I was like oh god I wish I saw that to kind of add to the character study as well but man did I think this was close to eternal sunshine because eternal sunshine is off the hinges once we're in dream sequence and the regret comes through and trying to break free. This movie is basically from Jump Street. You're trying to piece together what's going on and and the scenes don't make sense from beat to beat in the same locations. So that that definitely made sense to me in terms of some of the structure that he uses. And it's so thick with dread. Every scene, you're just waiting for the other shoe to drop, even though you're not entirely sure what the fuck is going on. You just, you have this, like, anxiety that's tightening with every scene. And like Mike said, it's building upon itself. And you're just like, you know everything is not right. Like, you, Tony Collette is literally just laughing. And let yet, by the way she's laughing, and by Jesse Plemons' reaction, you know something is very, very wrong here at this dinner scene. Right. It's just, it's very bizarre. Yeah, Jordan Peele will put a chud VHS tape right, at the beginning right. of his movie and just put it on a shelf. Right. If if it was Charlie Kaufman, he would have the Daniel Stern monologue being said through Jesse Buckley <laughs> sure. during the movie. You know, in through Chud's eye on a zoom in, and that's where the entire movie takes place. Right. It's true. I, I You know, he has a very distinct style, but I enjoy it because at least... Like you said, also, Mike, when you mentioned that it was kind of that around feeling where it was coming back, kind of giving you just little extra bits of information every time they kind of come through with a very similar and familiar theme, especially with the, the road trip stuff. you know, And you hear repeated dialogue. You hear similar internal monologues here that, by the way, impressed me so much, especially the more I watch this film. Those monologues that they have to do, these long, especially 
uh I'll, I'll talk about it later in terms of some of my favorite scenes but reciting poems for long stretches of time or going through long defenses of film criticisms or film criticism or any of these other things that pop up in the film that go for long long dialogue heavy stretches i do want to caution the people out there because i think that some of all of the goodies of this film are a bit abrasive and there are some trigger warnings attached and i, I wanted to make that a main yeah that's point probably very important actually because there's some heavy themes in this movie. I think his other films, even though they're existential crises on meth, you know, <laughs> yeah. in a Breaking Bad episode, I do think that uh, this film gets very dark in a hurry, like you said, you know, right off the jump street there, Andrew. But it doesn't necessarily tuck you into bed at night with, uh, in my case, a coffee, because I'm Italian. <laughs> you made fun of me. You made fun of me in the pre-show yes, for that. It but it, it, it's a very adult movie, and you have to be, yes. you, you have to go into this with your eyes open. Yeah, so you're saying this film is not for children. It's not for any <laughs> The movie ever. I'm thinking of ending things plays more for adults than for kids. Yeah. Well, number one, I thought Charlie Kaufman was going to announce the end of his movie career in his subsequent, <laughs> you know, novel, debut novel. At the beginning of this, and that's what I was worried, and I was not that again. It did not calm my worries watching this whole <laughs> right. movie. But thankfully, I think he's he's going to keep making films. I mean, how can you how can you let this be your last movie, Charlie Kaufman? Correct, or is this the, be the most Charlie movie? Kaufman way to end his uh, <laughs> directorial? Yeah, I would say, especially because Netflix likes to do things like this, give people kind of a a project that no one would probably greenlight. If you're a studio, right. uh, I mean, I, I don't even know how he got Cinedoche New York and <laughs> Anomalisa done through those channels uh, as well. But Netflix, I think, is a good spot for him because they like to have these kind of prestige auteurs building up in their catalogs on here. I mean, they just started working with David Lynch and, and how bananas, literally, uh, because it was a monkey movie, uh, how bananas that was. At least this one is not that. So if anyone is scared or being scared off by us uh, talking about this script and talking about this film uh, in such kind of like dire ways with, trigger warnings and heavy dialogue and existential crisis and everything else i think you're okay i don't go to we're not off the reservation just yet with that get an ice cream <laughs> right. and you'll be <laughs> That's fine it. but one of the things that you know why i talked to you guys about this before it came about is that like i said up top this is the start of kind of the netflix push what we thought was going to be the 2021 Oscar lens here. Now, the tough part here, right, is that we're early on in terms of what might come about, or we don't even know what might come about for the end of this year for the other studios right. or early 2021 with its competition. However, with all that said, I think this could have enough legs in certain categories to you know actually make some noise later on for those awards time ceremonies so where do you guys stand with that as you guys are the experts uh i'll start with mike one over there i would be listen when i when, when mike and i were talking about this 
my first take was if this movie was done by anybody who wasn't Charlie Kaufman, it was done. It was a first time film from some no name director. Mick. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Hey, listen, Let's... I have the babysitter killer queen on my queue at, at home right now. So, yeah. <laughs> it's a great movie, but you know, if, it, if it was like somebody's first time out, I don't think it would be getting near the hype. It is. I think we, there's a lot of conceits made by the viewer in this because it's a Kaufman movie and credit to me for not calling him Andy Kaufman by mistake yet this entire episode but that's coming but I do think there's a lot of a lot of uh, credit we give to to Charlie Kaufman that we ne- wouldn't necessarily give many other auteurs with that in mind because it's such a bizarre movie I, I think I would be surprised to see this go further than a screenplay nominee uh, that's not to say it's not beautiful when you watch it and there's not a lot there obviously there is and we're going to get into all of it but mike tell me if i'm wrong i mean does this go further than original screenplay or i guess adapted screenplay i should say i've been warming to the screenplay like crazy all day on my rewatch day so it, it is definitely in my top five for adapted screenplay it's in my top five for best actress and i thought i was going to come in hot today for colette and thewlis but i am actually saying that buckley is in my top three Clemens, he's in my top six, I'll be honest with mm. you. And cinematography is in my top five, and Lucas Zao's been in there before. The problem with this movie in terms of production design or anywhere else on the card picture is probably how abrasive it can get and how you know soul-crushing. And, and well, you how, need to watch it more than once. I mean, is. the yeah. Academy doesn't watch yeah. movies, period. You have to watch it more than once to, to truly appreciate it. It's true. But in terms of like production design, there's there's several neutral settings that we spend so much time in that if this movie was just at Tony Collette's house or if this movie was just in that basement and Jordan Peele's uh, video cassette <laughs> rack there, I think production design would have more than a shot. I mean, with with how they framed us. I mean, it's just the composition is gorgeous in those sequences. The problem is you go back to the car and all right, I get it. You're you're working in VFX snow and you got you know the the cutaways to the real snowstorms that they brilliantly decided to film beforehand. I read I read about that in pre-production, which is again, it's just you know these guys are pros. And then you got windows freezing up. I love that effect in the third car ride. So you really have some just mind-blowing shots, especially rewatching it and knowing what everything means metaphorically. So I do hope that the Academy would pay closer attention to that. I mean, this is more than a sparse milkmaid setting in Poland for Lucas Zal. I mean, he's got more to well, work with. I gotta keep with taking there, shots, so man. If he, if he can get nominated for that, then he should all... I mean, yeah, but is, here, here's here's another thing. Like, this is, in a lot of ways, the perfect movie for the shit show that has been 2020, but it's because of that. Like, I don't think the Academy is going to just embrace something that's so dour and so depressing after this year has been such a depressing year. I, mm. I think the Oscars are going to be more of an uplifting thing, and they're going to be looking specifically for yeah. that. So that combined with it's it's a crazy movie that you need to see more than once, and we know the Academy's track record there. I don't disagree with anything you say. I mean, standing on its own principles, yeah, I think it could be it should be up for a couple things, but I, I'm just projecting what I think the Academy would do, which is foolhardy in its own exercise. And No. Know. You're probably right, because in month nine of 14, when we're going to get all of the Oscar movies in months, you know, 
10, 11, right. <laughs> 12, 13, 14. Because Netflix, it's got a lot going against it. Not, it's got a lot going against it. Netflix, yeah, Netflix has 74 <laughs> movies they're trying to push. That's another yeah. thing. Like, are they going to put the campaign yeah. behind this one the way it should be? Can you but, imagine putting a full-fledged marketing campaign behind this movie? <laughs> <laughs> what do you serve at the after party? LSD. <laughs> <laughs> at the pre-party, I yeah. would say. <laughs> I, I agree with a lot of what you guys are saying. I mean, to me, I think best adapted is on the table. Yeah. I would say cinematography might be on the table. I'm not quite sure. Wouldn't surprise me. I'm not quite sure. Like, if if he didn't already have awards in his pocket, I wouldn't say that it would probably be on the table. But I think they also like to look at past success to kind of at least get a nomination. I'm not saying a win but at least a nomination might get there, especially because I was so impressed, like we were talking about, with how much they did with so little, or even just the the change in temperature and tones that they used in the film just to kind of signal at what degree this is like reality or him recalling different moments in time versus something that was complete fantasy or maybe from a different moment in time that was a glossier moment to him there's so many changes from moment to moment that it's not only like you said uh mike about the the editing i think it's an impressive editing feat as well but i would think that the cinematography because it already has some some pedigree along with it might have a better chance for the nominee, but I'll, I'll let you guys uh, hash that one out. Moments of genius. I mean, genius. That's all I'll say. You so I mean, that's I will have an outburst on this microphone. <laughs> it's nine thirty, and the dad jokes are just starting. <laughs> sorry, I'm not sorry. I'm sorry. I'm not yeah. sorry. No, on its own legs, on its principles, I think you're both absolutely right, and I think it. Especially with the film year that 2020 has been and it's been so barren. Yeah, as it stands right now at this point, it, it should be up for more. I, I Anything could happen. I just think it would take a lot on the Academy's part to, to actually cross those things through the finish line with based on how everything we talked about, all the variables that are left, and especially uh, Netflix has to put their force behind it. And I don't know that Netflix is going to do that for this movie. If you talked to me yesterday, I would have given an emphatic no. But yeah. I, I agree with you now, Mike. Could be, should be, is now... The question is how many more films clog up this Oscar race. And if, if not, then it has as good a chance as anything we've seen thus far in month nine. Yeah. I, I wonder with the September release whether they did that knowing that this might need a little more of a ramp to, to get there. Because I think if you release this later on in the year and then hope for some kind of you know buzz to get you all the way to the date, I don't know if that works. I don't know if that works with this type of movie. I think enough people need to like sit and remember and go back and especially like the critics who are willing to put in the time. Maybe it'll get something out of like critic circles, critics awards that might loop it back in. But you guys know more than anything. I mean, the the Globes are their own beast. The Oscars are their own beast. The the crossover is not high. And so to get momentum, especially in a year like this where, you know, the dates have moved around and, and there's no real cohesion here that I, I don't see where it'd be an easy ride for them to. I, I'm wondering whether we're being more optimistic uh, than we should. But oh, we yeah. are. Oh, yeah. But it's more yeah, hope. We are. Which uh, this movie should have taken away all our hopes. But <laughs> but <laughs> at least, you know, now 
you know, it's a good time, especially in 2020. This is a, a very optimistic conversation. So I'm proud of all three of us for being there for that. We're going to sink that ship real quick in the spoilers, I think. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And so so for anyone, thank you guys uh, for getting through the non-spoiler section. Uh, it's not really uh, my uh, hosting forte on the Nomcast. Uh, I know it's more you. But uh, in appreciation of the fact that we're getting this out to our audiences early and the respect uh, for the film, that was our non-spoiler section. And now we, I feel like we can really dive into this movie spoilers ahead this is a spoiler warning because as people who have seen it multiple times have kind of maybe hopefully have more of an appreciation even if you came out of this like you said mike about having if you watched it once and then you're just coming here for answers I don't know if we're going to help you or whether we're not or like, uh, you know, uh, if you're coming here for answers, you better hope that Andrew and also Mike have them. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, like we said, th- this movie is a tough sit. It's it's a it's a built as a thriller. Even the trailer builds it as something it's really not like I, I thought it was going to be actually even more quirky than it was more than like just odd. What I mean by that is like the the shaking dog and the you know excessive laughter and things it does really pinpoint it as more lynchian than it does when it actually performs in the film just like lynch he dares you to laugh he dares you to laugh for the first half hour and at the crazy dog and then oh my god your laughing turns to tears just like tony collette i mean the whole film mirrors actually the audience experience yeah and and especially um trying to sell this movie to like anyone who hasn't seen it giving that description that i did of the film the synopsis that they give out is not gonna bring many it's people to the t- it's also a lie yeah uh, <laughs> but the movie's a lie it, it, the yeah. movie is you know told by an unreliable narrator i mean it's jake plemons here is basically a controlling loner and failure broken by a rough childhood and suffering through basically ocd Looking back at his life through a fractured lens with dementia-riddled mind possible uh, as it goes through the family history, as mentioned in the Mm -hmm. film. His obsession with being seen and accepted, particularly from women, possibly due to his mother being, quote, sweet but cold, as they mentioned in there. Coupled with unhealthy control issues, there's still so many things to to possibly dissect with the, the Tulsi Town stuff. And the, and the dance murder and other things that could have larger meaning to how his delusions or his mind have gone. Yeah, he catfishes himself to death yes. in this movie. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. He self-catfishes himself to a horrifying death. Yeah. And it's, it's nothing but horrifying. You know what I'm thinking of right now is if somebody just put this on in the background... <laughs> and they were like doing something else, and like if you don't watch intently the first ten minutes, where that scene where the old janitor's looking out the window from his apartment down at Jesse Buckley, and then it's a Jake that going back, that's Jake looking out the window down at Jesse Buckley. If you don't see those two tiny scenes, yeah. you don't have a chance at knowing what the hell's going on. I don't think. No, but what I will say is again for. <laughs> For anyone, I guess the the recommendation, if we can say anything, is to watch it more than once because the appreciation the appreciation I had on second view for for knowing what I knew from the first, how much extra you can get from watching even that first sequence is oh, yeah. so impressive. Because 
when you're taking that first ride and they cut back and forth to the janitor, you're like, okay, so is this the dad? Like, is this yeah, who we're going to sure. go meet? And then when that doesn't happen, then you kind of retcon that out of your brain until he pops up again. Mm -hmm. And then you have to make another assumption. And then it's you're, you're basically following clues like a detective through this. And when it doesn't pay off, probably in the in the way that you want, this isn't an autopsy. This is really way headier than that, that I don't know what you can really fully get out of the first. I think I'm not a dumb man. <laughs> and on first blush, I mean, when when I watched this movie, I, I remember having a conversation with uh, also Mike on the phone after I had watched it where I was, he was like, well, just give me like your general impressions. And I was like, no, I can't. Like, this, <laughs> like there's no way I need to watch it again. I'm not going to say anything because it would do a disservice. Because when I first watched it, at first blush, I thought this movie was about aging and dementia, an old man being the unreliable narrator through the memories of his life, put hastily together in the fading moments, and it still might be a lot of that. There is a lot of that. I'm actually proud of myself for that's what I first wrote down when I watched this movie. But then I also had a lot of unanswered questions where I thought, especially... You know, I did the I did my thing from high school. I went and read the cliff notes on the book mm -hmm. and tried to. And I cheated off of you. Yes. I, did, no, I, I didn't do that in high school. Yeah. So it's it's just a bad cycle where the teacher knows who cheated off of who, where it's just this <laughs> running delusion of false information that we got. On the up. test, we write down that he stabs her in the neck. Yeah. The <laughs> right, right. Wait, that who was from the saw that coming? That wasn't from the real book. <laughs> Did you watch Hamlet the movie? <laughs> <laughs> but again, like I said, it still might be that the summations of the novel make it seem something a little more different, a little more sinister, a little more thrilling, especially compared to what the actual end of this film pulls off. Do you think that Kaufman potentially pulled back on this, like took the foot off the gas with the ending? Or what did you did you appreciate the ending for what it was? absolutely he pulled off the gas yeah. and we talked about it in the pre-show like this was not going to have the big aha moment he had to string that along he had to stretch the rubber band as tarantino likes to say because he had to give you a series of revelations that slowly dawns on you what's going on and then he has to put a broadway musical number in there at the end and a parody of a beautiful mind and a robert zemeckis joke that's really funny to get you <laughs> To get you to just take it with a spoonful. Hold off the gas in what way, though? Like in terms of in holding your hand and letting you know what's happening. Yeah, absolutely. A cartoon off the pig. Gas. Yeah. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like the in terms of the whole movie's a fucking abstract painting, and so no, it gets way more abstract at the end sure. when there's a cartoon pig introduced after this ballet, which is literally what happens. By the way, if you haven't seen the movie yet, I don't know why you're listening to this part because we don't have answers. But I'm telling you, that, I mean, literally, there's a ballet and then a cartoon pig. Yeah, and I don't know if I would call it exactly interpretive dance, but there is a lot to interpret from that dance murder that we keep yes. kind of like literally dancing Absolutely. around because when i watched it the first time i was like is this guy a murderer because the janitor kills the younger child and you know as a person who still works in that school 
and I watch and had a scene where he's watching, you know, people either perform in the hallways or perform, you know, rehearsals or any of these things. And, and we don't know exactly who these people, these women are, uh, who are supposed to be the amalgamation, the pieces that make up Jesse Buckley's character. You know, we know names. We don't know where they come from unless we're actually introduced to them like the like the the TV character, the movie character that he watches on television, that we actually have a name put to something. You know, other than that, we know that these people are made up of small moments that didn't mean much to them, probably, but meant a lot to him. You know, like these instant crushes from a loner who needs this kind of win but never got them. It's all the projection of the central character who is all not projection. Jesse Plemons's character. Jesse Plemons is a, is also a projection. It's all from I forget his name now. Guy Boyd. Great mm. job of acting by him, especially with this the scene with uh, Jesse Buckley in that hallway. Yeah, one of my favorite scenes of the movie from each of them, where she levels with him. And I wish I kind of you know received it the first time, but uh, absolutely. A movie that's contingent on those cutaways, and uh, and that's your through line at the end of the day. It is about a janitor who is losing his mind and running himself through the end of La La Land before he gets to the, the end of this film. Can you? And, and I'm not ashamed to 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 say that I have many many questions still. I I have a tough time putting together what that conversation in the hallway at the end between Jesse Buckley and the old man janitor was. She was his fake girlfriend. He had yep. never gone yep. up and spoke to her. So Got he, that. He invented basically what he thinks of women. Yep. Got and that. And put it all on Jesse Buckley. But in terms of the movie, so the whole the whole Jesse Plemons, Jesse Buckley relationship is basically, I took it as anyway, a mixture of what's happened in his life and his projections of what the perfect girlfriend would be, but how he would still uh, self-deprecate and, and, and self-sabotage the relationship anyway because he's got so many personal issues, even though some of the stuff did actually happen and it didn't happen because it's an unreliable narrator's lens, like Andrew's told us. When you get Jesse Buckley talking to him in his real-life job face-to-face, that lost me a little bit. I didn't understand where that fit into this whole frame. So he took... He catfished himself and took his fake girlfriend to meet his dead parents. You like my synopsis, Mike? I always love my synopsis. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's my interpretation of it, yeah. In terms of the, the, the subtextual plot, that's what happens in this movie. So he basically has to come face-to-face with his delusion at the end of the movie until he can kill his delusion and be stuck in the reality before he, you know, takes his parting shot. Yeah, and... And I, I found it interesting, her concoction here, basically, because like you said, she is the the best version of himself mixed with the best version of what he thinks a perfect girlfriend would be. He mixes in different names like she's Lucy in one scene. Wordsworth's she's, Lucy. Yeah. Right. She's uh, Louisa. I believe when the mm-hmm. parents are the older yeah. version of themselves mm-hmm. and the, the whole Yvonne. Yeah. Yvonne. <laughs> One of the things that is inherent with her character though, is that she keeps getting phone calls from basically people with the names of either the character she is at the time or other versions of what she's supposed to be. And yet when we hear the other side of the call, it's, it's the janitor, the older version of Jesse Plemons kind of, 
burying his soul, his doubts. Are At like, the height of his madness. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's his uh, Aronofsky pie moment, I, you know, throughout the film. So I wonder what his actual interactions were with these women that he, maybe he had some relationship where maybe they would be kind of calling out to him to try to get him to not do this. Does he have any relationships with any of these people? Did he ever have one of my favorite scenes of the film is at the ice cream parlor. Oh, where yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah, she recognizes one of the workers there with a rash and everything, and she couldn't place her. And then he actually is drawn to her working the ice cream parlor. And I think that's that was his actual crush. But right he, there. Sh- yeah, he shied away. He's like, I can't see, I can't be seen with her. She can't see me. So he has his back turned to her because to me, I was saying, yeah, that's a crush that he had in a past life and maybe even that's somebody who he actually left those voicemails on. Right. And so he's embarrassed by it and he doesn't want them to see him. But the other two girls were the girls making fun of him as a janitor earlier in the film. So I'm wondering like is that his projection of a nice high school kid who served him at the ice cream every night before he goes home? He he grabs an ice cream or before he goes yeah, to his late night shift. It's definitely he gets his an ice routine. Cream. Yeah, for sure. Or is it the one who got away, the girl from his childhood? Because this is his childhood home. It's it's all coming together. Yeah. And it's tinged, as they said in the film, right? Yeah, what did you guys I, I, I know I confessed to you guys in pre show that I thought there was maybe more to like possible you know him not just being a loner and a loser or a, this kind of failure in a sense because you know he, he he had many jobs like the way they portray it, i know definitely in the book is that you know he leaves his physics job like a bigger like smarter sounding you know what would be maybe more of an accomplished position to basically be a night janitor because all of his social anxieties and trepidations and and lack of self-confidence and everything he self-sabotages himself out of the job and goes down so i wonder you know because he has also issues of control and ocd and all these other things that he definitely could have and and has out fits of anger and outbursts of anger that i wonder if he was capable of something darker and that he was you know more torn and the the two things that made me think that were the situation at uh the ice cream shop where she says that the smell is not the varnish where it's kind of like maybe he killed someone and the body is still at there and that's part of like his routine of why he still goes there it's kind of like what a, a, a murder like a serial killer would do like right. kind of like revisiting scenes through your life that you know you you killed someone and then again if we don't know anything about these women besides that they were like fleeting fantasies are they still alive are they still around (laughs) like we don't know anything and then the murder dance like where a janitor actually performs the murder you can take on first blush a potential for more or something even darker in this film that he would want to kill himself besides just being a loner like it's regret on that level or guilt or you know any of those things I don't think that on second watch as much anymore, but I, I definitely thought that on first. And I could see where people could get kind of confused. Well, there's clues leading there. You know, he could be yeah. Kaiser Sose, like you said. The swing set. Why would he have a swing set in his backyard if he's never had kids? Yeah, and, and when he, I mean, he kind of has that rationalization in there. Yeah, yeah, and when the janitor version of himself is in the house watching television in the beginning of the film, 
he looks through the window and sees the swing set. So even though she's like, it's a it's a house that's kind of been run down but still has a pristine, uh, you know, swing set there. It's either a projection of when he thinks he was most happy or something potentially, or it's literally something that still is a part of that home. And it could be something. It might be his childhood home, too. It might be his childhood home there uh, that he's living in. That's why his basement is the janitor's basement, right? The basement of the parents home is the janitor's basement. And he's living in his hometown. And that's his childhood swing set. We we don't really know. I was going to say, and that's why the apartment thing is slightly confusing, too, about because they show him in multiple different spots. Where does he actually live? And where is, is he just revisiting his parents home because he's thinking of ending things or is he actually there the big speech that kind of brought it together for me ironically because i hated the scene was about the you know david foster wallace anecdote Mm. where she is saying and he he you know jesse plemons is saying that that's all you remember it's it, it only becomes about the suicide but she is saying it is so he was so much more than the cautionary tale and you know that's Charlie Kaufman putting it in the text, and he did this in adaptation like crazy, right. putting it in the text that, that, guys, you know, this is a full life, and these are conflicting emotions, and yeah, the mind is poisoned like a virus that keeps coming up in this movie that they keep talking about, but, and he knows that. The janitor knows that in this film, and that's why I think you have a lot of the characters warning each other right throughout the film like don't go to the room with the bad smell right because that's how he's going to kill himself somehow i don't know i think i think i think there's a lot of warnings with the phone calls trying to warn the jesse buckley character and the jesse buckley character doesn't want him to go into the high school and she freaks out and and the jesse plemons character keeps kind of like he's the antagonist of the movie to the Jesse Buckley, uh, the Jesse Plemons character versus the Jesse Buckley character, I think, as the protagonist. And yet when she does go, I mean, she's warned not to, I'm not warned outright, but pretty much, you know, don't go in the basement. But when she does go in the basement, it's like this beautiful art house. And so I took that as a metaphor for letting somebody get close to you. And he like he has this beautiful soul, but he doesn't get to show anyone. He's right. not she's not good with letting anyone in so i think there's a couple different meanings for a couple different warnings throughout the film as far as him being a guy that maybe is covering for murder or or could has has these darker tendencies i think there's a lot of evidence that suggests that like mike said but it's all on the outskirts because the jesse buckley relationship that's at the center of this movie is kind of void of any of that i mean there's a feeling of dread but that darkness the hints of anything more sinister going on isn't really there outside of grappling emotions i think yeah and i would say the beauty of this conversation that we're having right now guys is this is exactly what both the the author and charlie kaufman want they want open-ended answer they want interpretation they want a conversation piece to to actually have as their art and i think if anything i think they definitely pulled that off to whether this will there are like a couple of different types of people who would watch this movie. There's the person who watches this movie, gets so frustrated that they want to throw things and then will curse his name online and, and tell people not to watch the film. And that was me people- after the first watch. Yeah. <laughs> and then when you can watch the, the film a second time, I guess, or, or some people who watch it the first time and can kind of really get into some of the meatier conversations about 
life and aging and regret and loneliness and what society brings and really how we feel day to day, you know, trudging through life when maybe things didn't pan out and why a reason to live would occur or why a reason to end things would occur. And, it, and, and it's got more meat and texture to it. That is what I truly like about Kaufman's writing. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say right now, I don't think he was a serial murderer and everybody in the audience after the Beautiful Mind speech was everyone he's killed in his life. I don't think right. that's the case. Yeah. I think I think, he, you know, in the text, there's a lot there to affirm that this was a this was a, a, a an outcast. Yeah, this was a character that, you know, took a lot of road trips to Broadway and watched a lot of uh a lot of those great plays, and I loved when Jesse Plemons lists them all for her in one mouthful. It was brilliant. I was laughing. Again, dared me to laugh. I, I love that you have the scene of the janitor going through the hallway, and he's being made fun of, and and then he's and he's cleaning during the the play rehearsal, and the the kids are giving him you know nasty looks. Right. And I I do think that a lot of the speeches given in this film about him recognizing. A lot of the old actors from the Broadway shows, which is not the Broadway shows, it's really the school plays right. that he sees in the supermarket. And he sees them, you know, he sees kids still having trouble, the outcasts from the school still having trouble. And he sees kind of the, you know, the deterioration of all the Broadway kids and all their youthfulness from, from when they were on stage to when they're just kind of living in regular lives. So I do think this is a, a tragic figure in the greatest sense where, we are getting to know a man in full. And again, why the theme of this movie is in that David Foster Wallace piece. This is more than a cautionary tale right. at the end of the day. It's not just, don't just put this guy in the, the category of, oh, diseased mind, crazy, blah, blah, blah. No, it's much more than that. This is a fully realized individual who has, you know, deep-seated thoughts on everything and, and is, is very intellectual about everything and even rationalizes his suicide with the whole speech about the insects who wanted to blow themselves up for the good of their communities. I mean, there's this movie is dense and is full of the, all of those conflicting arguments until he finally kills them via interpretive dance. <laughs> <laughs> but to your point, yeah, I mean, that, that's... Yes, and and that whole speech that Mike just gave is is part of what Andrew's talking about. It's like they do a great job of leaving open these questions and leaving some things up for interpretation. Even though the the heart of the movie, I think we all kind of grasped onto at least parts of what's correct and what's he was the message was he was trying to convey. Like I said in the pre production, though, I think part of the frustration with this and why we do give deference to. Charlie Kaufman it's like oh it's Charlie Kaufman so he meant to do this whereas if it was somebody else we wouldn't is that mm. a lot of these questions are just unanswerable a lot of yes. the ones at the heart of it and that's why I said that that the before we hit record here I think it's like it, it, it's stuff that he doesn't address and we're like oh it's genius because Charlie Kaufman did it where at the same time it's like well you can't address it you can't answer are you good enough for yourself that's up to each individual person you can't answer if you're actually worthy of another person's love I mean we're told the answer is yes but who knows we're not God none of us really you know it's these types of questions that he's leaving throughout that I think that's where the frustration could come from as well is that even if you get to finding out what the questions being asked are there is no answer and even if you have debates like this and and talks about this and you have these long interpretations you really don't know you kind of got to shrug at the end of it and say maybe right 
Well, the one thing that this movie definitely is is the most deranged jumble of this is your life that you'll ever see <laughs> in your life. So at least he accomplished that. Uh, I want to, you know, because we're starting to get down uh, to the end here. What what I'd like to do is something you guys are very good at. Let's put a bow on this thing and really kind of, you know, do a couple of best scenes and then uh, we'll do grades. Are you good with that? Absolutely. Sounds good. All right. Uh, for me, I think we already talked about some of them for for best scenes. Uh, the woman reciting the poem in the first ride to the to the parents' house, I thought was incredibly done, well done. The amount of blocking and changes between her sweater colors, her hair colors, the the blocking of of the different ways they shoot something when it should be just something simple that's in a car when to cut to back to Plemons on on certain lines that would echo more of what the character is going to do forward i and and at one point you have jesse buckley literally looking dead into camera pitching certain lines that are going to be again more meaningful uh to this character study as it goes on further in the film i absolutely love that uh the the dinner scene uh, we've mentioned many times. I, I really like that because there's so much to chew on there, and it's so bizarre that at least you know <laughs> uh, in a movie that was you know very subtle to begin, this was where the wheels really started to come off the bus. And then uh, Tulsi Town, we mentioned as well, is definitely not a town that I want to be in. It was so awkward and bizarre and antagonistic and and had so many things like you said that still are unanswered but definitely had a lot of me where do you guys see uh, any of those uh you know ring true for you uh as being some of the better scenes or did you have anything to add uh we'll start with also mike uh most definitely uh i love the setup for this movie it hooked me so hard that it's kind of disappointing when you realize what the movie is about on first blush before you can kind of get over your disappointment and study the thing and then you and then you kind of love it in a sick sick way but i <laughs> i i agree with you in many ways uh you know beat by beat there i loved the scene between Jesse Buckley meeting the janitor, as I mentioned before. Mm. It's probably my favorite scene that broke my heart because of Guy Boyd's performance where he is, you know, teary-eyed and then he is, you know, in a, in a very tough way. He's, he's lying to her as she is just bluntly honest with him that she's, he's lying to her that he's okay. And that, that scene really breaks him in that moment and it really sets him over the edge. I think, uh, I think... Jesse Plemons singing "Many a New Day" in front of that audience of uh, from The Shining, <laughs> Incre- incredible. I mean, it's the weirdest ending after the interpretive dance and all that. I don't. I'm not in for every single beat of that in wild, ludicrous ending, but it really broke my heart when he's in front of his parents and he's got this elaborate way of saying goodbye and, and signing off uh, as a, as a character in the film. And that, that was just it, it's it's overwhelmingly emotional if you let yourself think about it yeah. and then and then in terms of the disgusting the the pig stuff just made me shudder and i think that was as disturbing and horrifying an anecdote that literally comes to life in the film as i've ever seen yeah i hope uh heaven is just toontown uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh uh yes i agree with both of you the setup everything about the car ride is from the dialogue 
to how long that scene goes on when you're expecting a totally different type of movie to the expectations it's set about his parents and about what's to come to the questions it brings up. Like everything about the, the setup to this movie is really, really superb. Um, the Charlie Kaufman film criticism that's hidden in this movie is equal parts hysterical and biting. Like, he just out and out takes a shot at Robert Zemeckis, <laughs> which yeah. was great and probably the hardest I laughed in the movie. And yep. I, he works in, obviously, A Woman Under the Influence. The critique of a, a woman under the influence is working into this great movie scene. as well. A, another fantastic scene. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I was wowed most by performances. I mean, everything Tony Collette does with this character is so out, out there for me. Jesse Buckley, I think, was phenomenal. The restraint Jesse Plemons shows throughout and the creeping vibe. Like, Jesse Plemons, to me, was a guy I wanted to root for the entire time, but I just couldn't because he was just giving off. He was playing almost every interaction awkwardly, and now knowing what we know now about the film, it makes sense, but yeah. uh, there's a lot to like about this movie, and, and I, I thought that maybe this is one of those rare times where the parts of the movie even outdo the whole of it. Yeah, and, and to echo some of your points there, like Jesse Plemons, uh, I loved him more in the second watch, too, because you could really see, because he's has to be so subtle, but even things like, you know, building into the out bursts that he has later in the film uh, when they talk about how you had too much to drink that he kind of starts to seem drunk himself and kind of has these mm. subtle mood changes as the movie goes on that is so impressive because he does it in such a low-key way and also man can that guy sing I love the fact that he, he can do everything in terms of that. Like I said, that scene from El Camino uh, when he's singing along in, inside the car after doing horrendous things. And in this movie where he's losing his mind, but he could still you know, uh, pull off a tune uh, here and there. Uh, it's, it's actually very impressive. And by the way, low-key, the Tulsi Town theme. The jingle of the century, guys. It is so good. <laughs> I was into it. It was memorable. And for them to just pull that out of thin air that I'm aware of is so good. Everything about the ice cream shop I wanted to mention. Yeah, it's it. the, the score plays games with you at times, too, right down to that theme. But I'm, I'm with you. I echo what you say. Absolutely. All right. So let's get down to brass tacks then, guys. Let's start doing some grades. Uh, Mike, one, I'll start with you. Because for me, I will say that I... Uh, you know, I put this as a B uh, for me. I, I I couldn't I I couldn't give it anything higher for a film that I'd be like, yes, you have to watch this more than once. Right. But also, it will be so depressing that you won't <laughs> want to do that. So it's so hard to kind of put that through. But the talent, you know, is up and down. You know, you know, in front of the camera and behind, so impressive that I was engrossed in so many scenes that if it's lesser people lesser talented people i'm i i don't care it would seem like uh you know some of these like smaller indie movies from the 90s where i was like this is just a philosophy text puked onto a screen this has so much more uh texture and style and everything else that i think like you said maybe it is because i liked kaufman going in that some things are more for forgivable but I would say this is, at this point, uh, I haven't put it on my ranking system yet, but it's definitely one of my favorites of the year. 
it's very good and it's the exact opposite of I think I texted Mike after the first time my first watch and I was like I think I hate this movie so it's that <laughs> I much was like of me a, too yeah, <laughs> it's that much of a disparity or discrepancy between watching it once or watching it more than once so I think you hit it on the head it's it's tough to say oh I watched a movie two and a half times so I think I understand 50% of what's going on so it's a great film I have a really tough time saying that so I the the the, where I land is again I think the parts of this are greater than the whole it becomes Mm -hmm. I think a B is pretty fair considering uh how much I disliked my first watch uh, right. So I, I'll say squarely in that 84, 85 solid B range. I think you nailed it, Andrew, for me. I'm the same. Uh, I'm a B86. I almost talked myself up to a B plus 87, the coveted B plus from us. <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's Metascore is a 75. I wonder if the more people see it, it'll go up or down uh, on right. those uh, tomato meters, which is at 89% at the beginning of the day. But we're recording this early. Uh, and I, I wonder what it's going to be actually when this movie's released. So I, I think that, again, it's a tricky Oscars campaign because you got to watch it more than once, and right. that's probably what they should lead with. If they're listening to us right now, you have to hold two screenings. <laughs> right. Not just back one. Back. For yeah. And go into group. a partnership with Dairy Queen. Give everyone blizzards. <laughs> but this movie's one of those that might be more fun to talk about than it was to watch. And I'm really glad that we were able to do this today and give such a huge non-spoiler segment and then kind of just lay it all out there in, in the spoilers quickly somehow. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm proud of us on the one hand. But I, I do think, you know, this might be a movie that we're kind of coming back to once in a while and, and learning so much more about because it is that dense. And uh, I think I my ice cream cravings are going through the roof <laughs> and i think i would probably give it the b plus if i you know if i got to see the characters eat more ice cream <laughs> in these movies that was a worst scene you didn't let me mention before right. the fact that that we have all of this wonderful food the the ham aside because gross but the, all this wonderful food and they don't get to eat it like she takes two bitefuls of the burr yeah so I'm giving this four out of five burrs. It would have been five out of five Oreo <laughs> burrs. But, I didn't, burrs. you know, I would dance murder a hundred of my former selves and fake girlfriends to eat some of that ice cream or that chocolate <laughs> you lug. And I, I really got to get off this diet, guys. I'll be much happier. That's the measure of any good movie is that sentence right there that you ended on. <laughs> <laughs> I would also say that now that we've seen so many car trips with Jesse Plemons that I think Jungle Cruise might be darker than we all think. <laughs> so I think that might be a questionable viewing for whenever that decides to come out. But you guys always bring the best game here. So I appreciate you you know, doing this with me, collaborating. I also want to thank Netflix for helping us uh, get the film early so we could do this and make sure that we have all the info out to our audiences uh, before they can make an informed decision to watch the film. I think the three of us would definitely say we recommend watching it, but obviously know uh, from our non-spoiler section what you're going into, and hopefully you go in with an open mind and and you can check out a film that might have some legs as we get further into the Oscar season. So thank you guys again for doing this, and I hope to do this again with you guys real soon. Thank you, Andrew. It It was a blast. 
always fun having Andrew on the show and, and nice, frankly, that I can talk to him once in a while as opposed to just sticking also <laughs> Mike with him and having that be what no, I, we cannot thank him enough. He comes in clutch and comes in for relief for us a lot of times. So it's always fun to talk to Andrew and he always brings great insight as he did this episode. Hopefully. Andrew led you guys to some answers. I know I got some out of this conversation, but if you want to follow Andrew's work, which you absolutely should, be sure to be online at nomcastpod.com, N-O-M, Netflix Original Movies Cast, N-O-M-Cast.com, as well as nomcastpod on all social medias, Instagram, uh, Twitter, Facebook, of course. Uh, Wise words there, Michael, no? Yes, uh, those will be our words of wisdom for the day, of course. Guys, check out the Nomcast pod. He's done episodes on Christmas and in July. Christmas in July movies on Netflix. He's done episodes on Project Power. He gets awesome guests from comedians, fellow comedians. Andrew's a comedian himself to musicians. And uh, he just had like this lead singer from Satanic Panic 80, 1981 do an episode about working with <laughs> Mike Flanagan. And uh, that, a, a really awesome horror movie that's on Netflix right now uh, with Jacob Tremblay. I for, I'm forgetting the title. Gosh darn it. But it, it's pretty good. It's basically the, you know, the plot to twist from another movie that we just reviewed on monday with uh swell entertainment and new mutants so just you know it, it all comes together i guess it all comes full circle in the mmo empire and speaking of the mmo empire guys we want to know your thoughts and you gotta have thoughts about i'm thinking of anything quite frankly so we just want to know are we right are we close to what you're thinking are we way off base let us know all that uh, about this movie about anything you heard us say today in this review uh, as well as anything else that we do here in the mmo empire you can leave us all of those on our social medias we are mike mike and oscar on facebook mike mike and oscar on instagram at mm and oscar on twitter mike mike and oscar at gmail.com.com and on reddit we are available everywhere you hear podcasts including and especially apple podcasts and if you're listening to us on apple Podcasts, if you would be so kind dear listener as to leave us a five-star review that would take off about 10 seconds out of your day and make our entire one we already did the words of wisdom michael so what is coming next for the good people at home that's a big movies now we go from the indies from the film sets from hell that actually turned into a halfway decent film i guess but you know we go back and listen to our last two on new mutants and uh or i guess this one we're recording this out of order so i am confused <laughs> and cross-eyed at this point but we did two it's a perfect mo- setup for tenant <laughs> we did two movies and now we got two more movies that are the big ones we got tenant we got milan we're really excited for those because we got two more uh guests sets of guests that are coming on from two other great podcasts and uh i'm really thrilled and uh, mike's really thrilled to talk to them as well Time's moving backwards and forwards and all over the place, so we're in the proper headspace for Christopher Nolan's latest, I think. That's right. We thank Charlie Kaufman for putting us in that bizarre, deformed headspace. Mike, uh, uh, guys, when reality sucks, you can come watch these movies with us. We think that's what we watched anyway in this episode. Uh, We are Mike, Mike, and Oscar trying to make award season year-round. Without the stuffiness, we will see you all very soon. See ya. See ya.